Hey, 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 this is Lisa A, and you're listening to Who's That Star on LCC Connect at Lansing Community College. Who's That Star is a behind-the-scenes show where I sit down and talk with the employees at the college. This is an inside look at LCC where you will have a chance to learn about their passions, projects, what inspires them both at work and in their personal lives. I'm your host, Lisa Alexander. I'm so excited to get a chance to talk to all the people who make LCC great. This show is for you to get to know the people that work at Lansing Community College a little bit more and see what makes them tick. Are you ready? Okay, let's go see who's today's star. Today on Who's That Star, we have a Michigan native that was born in Dearborn, Michigan, just a ways down the road. She began her educational journey by attending a community college. She went to Henry Ford Community College, where she attended her first two years. Her mom was a secretary there in the social science department. This star has earned a Ph.D. in rhetoric and writing and a master's of arts in digital rhetoric and professional writing from MSU, a law degree from University of Denver College of Law, and an English degree from U of M. Our star has been teaching writing at LCC for 23 years. She's taught a variety of writing classes, but currently specializes in teaching Composition 1, a.k.a. here English 121. In addition to her time teaching at LCC, she worked on and led a number of student success initiatives, such as Achieving the Dream and Gateways to Completion. She worked on student success projects, such as the introduction of 24-7 online tutoring, co-requisite model remediation, multiple metric use in student placement, and redesigning tutoring and embedded learning. She also worked extensively on remodeling the arts and science building during the past President Dr. Knight's leadership. And if you get a chance to go in there, it's beautiful. Our star describes her passion as teaching and advocating for students. So, drum roll, please. Today on Who's That Star, we have Martine Rife. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Um, thank you for inviting me. I'm, I feel very honored to be here today to be interviewed by you, and I really appreciate your time to do this. Oh, well, I'm the one that feels honored. I've worked with you a long time, and I will really say that you are a great instructor. I appreciate what you do for the students that I send to you. You take care of them. You provide them with encouragement and love. Mm -hmm. And I was really excited to have you come on here today because I send a student to you. I get a good report. Oh. And so, I mean, you're engaged with mm -hmm. them. And I'm not trying to hype you up because mm -hmm. you came. But I really feel like that about you, Martine. I think Aww. that you're a person that cares about what they do. You're patient with students. You work to accommodate students where they are, but you're not settling on the work that they give. And so I just want you to know from me as an advisor and a parent, you're the kind of instructor that we want our teachers and to be. So Oh goodness. I'm just gonna say you that tell you that. And I mean that from my heart. Because oh my gosh. Wow. Thank I've you worked so with much. you in a lot of different areas and we've been on committees together. Mm -hmm. And every time, you know, I see you, I see passion for students. And so I don't I'm not trying to make you <laughs> and take you off that's okay. God. I'm just really, but, wow, those are some really s nice things that you said about me, and I'm very touched about what you said. So yeah. as a teacher, you know, um, we don't always get, like, acknowledgement from the students necessarily. They're busy with their own lives mm -hmm. doing things and so forth. So I really appreciate that. Yes, I'm glad that I'm able to, to do that and give you that information because it's important for you to know the role 
and the impact that you have on our students. And that's all our instructors. You know, you instructors spend more time with students than anybody else on campus. You know what I mean? That's true. And so you get those four months to really make an impression. And how you treat people and how you engage with them can make or break them. Yeah, I I wish that everyone realized. I mean, I wish that everyone had your wisdom about the importance of faculty to the success of the mission of the college, just that in this setting, we are the frontline workers in a way. Mm -hmm. So, but of course I deeply appreciate advisors and wish that we had way more of them. Yeah, no, it's a good, it's a good marriage per se, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I really, I just know that you do great. So I just wanted to let you know that that was my going off, but I I, I wanted (laughs) you to know that. I didn't expect you to say all that. (laughs) I know. uh, You took me off guard, but thank you so, so much. It really means a lot coming from you to say that. Well, I I just want you to know I mean it. So, (laughs) well, can you tell me about your work at LCC and what are your roles here? Well, I've had a lot of different roles in the past, but Right now, I'm focusing on teaching, which is actually my favorite thing, and I love teaching. So I'm really focused on being the best educator that I can, and it's a real delight for me to be able to teach because it allows me to be a learner for my career. And so if I could be a professional student, you know, I would have done that, but uh I think this is the next best thing because I am a student along with my students. So I have a lot of empathy for my students because Mm -hmm. I was in their shoes at one time. So my role right now is just teaching, uh, writing, and I think that's my main thing right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm very focused on that and trying to make sure all my materials are updated and redesigning my class like a lot depending on what. I, I am learning about how effective my teaching is, and I just took a class on doing the high flex model. So we now have a way of offering a class at LCC where students can attend or not attend, and either way, the lecture and all the material and all the assignments are provided for them. So I really like the idea of that, and so I'm going to be trying to teach in that mode. Oh, okay, yeah, I... Davenport came in and did a a review of their curriculum and stuff, and they were talking about how they have that high-flex model. Mm -hmm. It seemed like a lot of colleges and universities are going towards that, and I know that you're going to make it a way that's going to be fun for the students. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Well, right now I already, in my face-to-face class, I teach online and face-to-face, but in my face-to-face classes I already tell them, you know, if something comes up or you're not feeling well, you don't have to come to class. I, everything is everything is doable without you being present. I'd love to have you in class. It's mm-hmm. fun when you're here. We all benefit from you being here. But if you can't come, you can't come. I'm not going to penalize you in any way, and you'll be able to make the work up. So basically, it's the same idea, but enhance the high flex model because the lecture or the class time is actually recorded so that students who aren't able to be present can watch the lecture or live stream it. I was going to ask you, like, when you talk about the going and taking classes Mm -hmm. to make sure you're more effective, people don't take that into account as what you have to do to be a good instructor or a good teacher. Now, tell me more about, like, you build a class, but how does what does that look like when you're thinking about that? What do you or do you have to meet certain measures that's provided by school? How do you build your class? Oh yeah, that's a good question. Um, one thing that I do is I try to have experiences that are very novel for me because I know that by doing that, by having a novel experience for me in an educational setting, that that is going to inform my teaching. So I actively seek out experiences that will inform my teaching. So I teach comp one mainly, 
And when I began building my class, which would have been 23 years ago, things were quite a bit different back then. And you just kind of start from scratch. Other teachers give you materials that you can incorporate and you start to see what's effective by what you get in response from your students. So now when I am doing an assignment, which it isn't regulated. There, there's some best practice guidelines and so on, but we have learning outcomes in our class. So mm-hmm. all of our assignments are supposed to map onto our learning outcomes. When I give an assignment or give material to read, I request some kind of information or feedback from the student. That information and feedback and, you know, or a submission of assignment that I get from the student, that informs me what I need to to adjust my presentation. It it depends on, are the students learning the material or are they struggling with some aspect of it? So then I know that if many students are not grasping the thing that I'm trying to teach, that means that there's a problem with my teaching materials. My teaching materials need to be adjusted or be more flexible so that students have different ways of expressing their knowledge, that kind of thing. So how do I build a class? Um, At this point, I'm teaching mainly something that I've been teaching for a long time, but I love it because I still have not figured it out. And the students are always changing Mm -hmm. and they're, they're just all, there's so many things that are always changing that I have to learn. I mean, I have time in my career now to learn how to be the best teacher possible. So I seek out opportunities that can inform my teaching, I guess, is kind of the answer to that question. Yeah, no, but I think it's important that you say you're still learning, right? Oh, yeah. After 23 years, you don't think that, oh, I've done this, I already know, this is my class, you either like it or not. You know, you adjust (laughs) and you make, oh, we have different type of students now maybe than we did 20 years ago. We definitely do. So I have to do this and do that. So I think that's really wonderful. I'm glad, you know, to hear that. I know that I just, like I said, I know you do a great job. So talk about like, what was some of the, I look at your history of working on initiatives. Mm -hmm. How do you feel initiatives helped you in your career? Did you learn a lot of things? Was it something that you were passionate about? Some of the, like the achieving the dream Mm -hmm. and gateways to completion. When you worked on those what were you hoping to help with the student experience or do with the student experience? Well, the main thing for me always has been that I am interested in eliminating social injustice. And at the college, one way we have of eliminating social injustice is to provide an education to the learners who come across our doorstep. So I've always been interested in in social justice and working towards social justice. So the initiatives that I worked in at the college, such as the co-requisite model of education and getting more students placed into college level classes and so on, they all spoke to the issue of making college a positive experience and allowing a broader range of students to participate in the college experience. The main thing that many of those initiatives worked on was there's this notion in community college, which around it, there has been um, some national projects. But when a student comes to the college, most community colleges, they have to be placed. They have to um, present what level they're at as far as reading and writing and math. And depending on what level they present, depending on what the measurements are, they may or may not be able to um, be placed into a college class. Twelve years ago when I started working on this and the initiative with uh, Accelerated Learning or Co-Requisite Model, students who say placed below college ready for lack of a better term, in reading and writing, they would need to take some developmental courses, they're called, which uh, cost money and are credit-bearing, but not college credit-bearing. So um, because those students um, tested lower or for whatever reason placed lower, they would be quite delayed before they could take college composition, which is the class I specialize in. So the whole issue that is so 
interesting to me and that I'm so passionate about is equalizing and making more equitable the ability of a broad range of persons to participate in the college experience. So my dream world, students would come to campus and if they want to be in a college composition class, then they will be put in that college composition class if they need some kind of um, embedded learning or extra help, then that will be available to them. And that actually is very close to what we're able to do in the English department right now anyway. It's not perfect, but there's a lot of other, you know, technical issues around the remediation at the community college situation, which is that Percentage-wise, a larger percent of students of color get placed into remedial and developmental classes. So that is what has created a big um, social justice issue for me. Mm -hmm. And also um, with Gateways to Completion and some of the other projects I work on, there is a gap in, for example, white and Asian students who are categorized as white or Asian, they will have a higher pass rate in a college class, in the college writing class, than black students, Latinx students, and so forth. So there's a couple different issues going on that all speak to social justice for me. So I grew up in the 60s, and I grew up during the civil rights movements, the various civil rights movements. There was many different kinds of them. And so for whatever reason, I'm just really interested in social justice and to the ability that I could work on some of the larger goals through those initiatives. Those were very, very satisfying for me because even though it took many years, more than a decade on some of those projects, they have been adopted and institutionalized by the college. Mm -hmm. But my first love is teaching and even though I can't change the world like mm. in the classroom and I can't change the whole college, I still, you know, I appreciate you earlier saying that I have impact because you don't really know if you have an impact, but I still feel that by equalizing and making as equitable as possible the learning experience in my class for all the different kinds of students that I'm presented with, that I go out of my way to do that I feel that's my teeny tiny piece of the world where I can have a positive impact, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And I can't really know that I'm having a positive impact. I can't really, I have to just kind of trust that I'm trying to do no harm. Right. And just doing the best I can and trying to be responsive, be up to date in my approaches, be at the cutting edge in my approaches, you know, if I can. Yeah, no, I think you you explain it wonderfully. And I know we've talked a lot about what you do at LCC. Um, I think we didn't even tell people. Do we tell them you've been here for 23 years? Yeah, I think you said that in the beginning. Okay, well, like we're, that. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to go ahead now. And I want to talk about a subject that you geek out about. <laughs> and what do you love to learn about? Well, in addition to teaching you're mm -hmm. talking about, right? So actually when I started college back in the 70s, the late 70s, I wanted to be an environmental scientist. So I'm really interested in the environment and I'm interested in like gardening, self-sufficiency and trees and wood forests, those kinds of things. Because so. you planted what, like a thousand trees? I have planted a lot of trees in my life. So I read a lot of books about trees and I'm always trying to learn how to identify trees. And um, there's, I have a lot of tree stories from my childhood for some reason, even though I grew up in the city. I went to a school at Greenfield Village in Dearborn, Michigan. And so there was a lot of nature around us mm -hmm. and things. But um, yeah, I really love trees. And so I have a little piece of property where I'm like trying to plant a forest on six acres, but it's taking me my whole life, but I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> hey, hey, that's all right. You are, you are doing what trying you can. Trying to plant can. a forest, making yeah. up for all the paper that I used in my teaching job. <laughs> right. <laughs> you going to replace it. Yes. Um, what, was your, what was your first job? My first job ever, uh, let's see, I started working when I was 14, so I had a job babysitting, and then after that, that led to a job at Greenfield Village where I was 
working in like selling hot dogs at a hot dog stand. <laughs> and then after that, I kept working there and I worked in maintenance. So I would go in the buildings and dust all the antiques. And that was really fun. Yeah, you have a wide range of experiences <laughs> of things that you do. You uh -huh. know what I mean? Yep, like, that's true. as educated as you are, mm -hmm. people would not know how you will get into that dirt and you will you will do and get as grimy as oh i love that yeah i know and i love that people wouldn't wouldn't know that about but i'm you. learning when i do that because i like to know how things work i mean i like to know how things are born i like to know how things develop and it all goes with gardening and that so well what instantly calms you or what activity do you do that instantly calms oh you? Well, the thing that would instantly call me would be reading, okay. I would think. I actually, that was a good question that you have because I couldn't really answer that until I thought about it. And if I start reading, and I realize that's why I'm a teacher and why I'm a student, because reading calms me. So I've always been attracted to reading. Yeah. Gardening calms me too, but reading is something, if I just pick up something and start reading, I'm going to get calm. Right. And I hadn't thought about that either, but I could see, you know, you can see yeah. how that would do that. Because it, it helps focus yeah. all my energy on yeah. one thing. Yep. Well, what's the first thing you do after getting home from work? The first thing I do after getting home from work is I talk to my dogs and <laughs> I just say their names and I usually kneel down on the ground and usually I sit on the ground as soon as I get home and then they jump all over me and we act like we haven't seen each other for like a year, <laughs> even if it's only been a few hours. Yeah. Yeah. That's the first thing I do. And you love, they love oh, that Oh, I love them and yeah. they love me. Yep. Well, what's your favorite way to spend the day off? Um, my favorite way to spend the day off is like working outside. So I have a lot of different projects. That's one good thing about where I live. If I get bored with one project, I can work on another project. So I'll go outside and I will like be weeding, I'll be planting something, or I'll be cleaning up old wood on the ground or whatever. Just Stuff like that. Because yeah. you stay busy. Physically moving. Yeah. yeah. You, uh -huh. you stay busy all the time. Yeah. Um, so what is your proudest accomplishment? My proudest accomplishment? Oh, that's definitely my children. So I have two children, and but they're in their 30s now. But that's definitely the best thing I ever did. And they turned out really good. So they're nothing like me, thank heavens. So they turned out really good. And then, um, so that's definitely my number one. And then my second biggest accomplishment really is um, some of the trees I planted are really tall. And I get a huge sense of accomplishment that I planted that tree when it was like five inches and yeah. now it's like 30 feet tall. Wow. And yeah. I love that feeling. That's yeah. You can see. Yeah. <laughs> you can see what you've done. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It helps me. Well, we're almost done. Okay. Almost done. Okay. And I don't know if I should ask this question, but I'm going to ask it. Um, you went to U of M, you went to Michigan state. Yeah. Blue or green. <laughs> um, I actually have, well, okay, so U of M, that was, I didn't get to go on a real campus because I lived at home in Dearborn, so I had to go to U of M Dearborn, but my diploma says U of M, so I never really got to go to Ann Arbor, mm -hmm. but I do love U of M, and I appreciate it, but uh, my heart really is with MSU because both my kids graduated from there, and my partner graduated from there and I graduated from there and they're close and they're like really close and LCC students all want to go there and their <laughs> right. campus is completely and totally the most gorgeous campus I've ever seen. It's actually a lot more beautiful than Ann Arbor. I'm sorry, yeah. but MSU is amazing. Okay. So I okay. guess I'm green. Yeah. Okay. I, just, <laughs> I wanted to see how that would go, but yeah, you okay. did that well. Right. Martine, I want to thank you. Mm -hmm. So much for coming Thanks by. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm so honored. And thank you for all the kind things you said to me. Oh, yeah. It was okay. the truth. I don't usually say stuff I don't mean. So okay, that was for good. sure okay. um, how I feel. And the thing about it is how students feel. So okay. that's the more important thing. But so thank you. Okay, thank you. So, hey, ladies and gentlemen, I'll see you next time on Who's That Star? You've been listening to Who's That Star? I'm Lisa A., and you can listen to this episode of Who's That Star and other shows from LCC Connect anytime online 
at lccconnect.org. Thank you for listening. Catch me next time to find out who's that star. Examining the issues and topics that affect our lives from the local level to the world stage. Listen to the programs of LCC Connect anytime at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. K-12 Operations at Lansing Community College is a proud collaborator of the Mason Promise Scholarship. The Mason Promise Scholarship is a community organization of volunteers that guarantees funding for two years of Lansing Community College education to selected Mason Public School students. For more information on the Mason Promise Scholarship at LCC, please visit lcc.edu slash hope. What is dedication? People ask how your children learn how to ride a bike and you didn't. I just created an environment where they taught themselves and all I had to do was be there. That's dedication. Visit fatherhood.gov to hear more. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Lansing Community College welcomes transfer students. Transfer students may apply prior credits toward their LCC degree, certificate, or transfer program. Learn more at lcc.edu slash belong. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. This is Melissa Ford Locken. Rosalie Petrowski. Susan Seraph and Jess. Editors for the Washington Square Review. Washington Square On Air showcases the poetry and fiction of the latest edition of LCC's literary journal, The Washington Square Review, read by the poets, authors, and editors themselves. Expect the unexpected as our contributors express experience and fantasy with humor, imagination, poetic license, irony, and passion. If you love language at its most original, please join us in our audio town square to celebrate a community of writers spanning from around the world to Lansing. Hey everyone, this is Melissa Ford Locken. From the Washington Square Review, I'm one of the editors. I'm happy to have Carol Greenfield with us today. Her piece, Equilibrium Line, is the very first piece in our Summer 23 journal, and we're really happy to have you here today, Carol. The first thing I'd like to know a little bit about is your piece. How did you come to write it, and what was going on in your life at the time? So for a while now, I've been working on pieces that take, as their title, a geological term. And then I connect that with an emotional experience that I'm going through or that I'm reflecting on. And equilibrium line was one of the terms that I've loved and have held for many years, but was not able to find the right poem to go with it. So when I finally did, it felt like a kind of satisfying completion because I just liked what an equilibrium line represents and what it means. So talk a little uh, bit about what it means to you, the equilibrium line. Yeah, I mean, I think when we think about equilibrium, we think of balance and something that we're always striving to find and lose and find again. In geological terms, what it means is on a glacier, it's the boundary at which the addition of materials just balances the loss. And to me, that just sort of speaks to what we deal with in our life. Like, how do you find that balance of what you've lost, what you've gained? And... I think what was going through for me when I wrote this poem was I'm in my second marriage and I was reflecting on what caused my first marriage to end and thinking, am I repeating patterns or can I make a different choice and think about things in a different way so um, I won't repeat myself and won't have the same history happen? You know, is it inevitable like what happens in geology or is it actually something that I can control somewhat? So those were kinds of the things I was working with and thinking about when I wrote the poem. That's really beautiful because that's something everyone can relate to throughout life. We are always constantly, you know, redefining, redefining and, and finding new edges and our lives are constantly changing, which is interesting when you start to think about the geological terms and compare geology to real life experiences. How did you come across this concept? 
I'll, I, I would, I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> many, many years ago, back in the early 90s, I was working for a short time at a science research company, which if anyone knows me, that seems bizarre because I'm anything but a scientist. I was in the sort of the common room and I happened to see this book called Physical Geology. And for some reason, Melissa, I picked it up and I opened it and it just, the terms to me seemed crystal clear that, oh, this is about emotion. And I did something I've only done twice in my life. Um, I stole the book. I, I took it <laughs> home and I never brought it back. <laughs> I still have it. Um, and I started taking notes and thinking that I would write a, a series of geology poems and I called it the geology series. Um, and I proceeded at geological taste. So this was back in 92 and my collection just came out this year. So you can see it, it was like an eon. Um, so that's actually how I got started. It just, um, to me, seemed obvious that, that they were connections to emotion. And I've been kind of playing with them ever since. Can you offer a couple of the other terms that inspired you? Oh, absolutely. The first one, actually, I think equilibrium line was one of the first, but the actual first was probably cleavage because it's such an interesting term because it means so many different things. But in geology, it means it's the zone of weakness where if you hit the crystal or the rock, it splits. And I started thinking we all have those zones of weakness within us. And if they're struck a certain way, we might break apart even though cleavage also means coming together. So I think that was the very first one. And then there's many others. The book actually is divided into two sections. The first section are all geological terms. The other one I'll say, which is connected to my work, which is teaching children. One of my earlier ones was called Trace Fossils, which is about um, not a fossil, but the evidence of a fossil. And I connected that with some of the work I do with children. So... How did you connect it with your work with children, that particular one? I could read it. It's a short one, if you yes, like. Yes, please. Okay. So trace fossils are fossils in which evidence of organisms rather than the organisms themselves are preserved. So trace fossils. Small children do not wait for pain to make a lasting mark. They give fair warning. We have time to wipe off tears, mop up trouble, kiss a bruise, pronounce it healed. But love leaves an impression that won't be kissed away. An imprint left in something soft hardens and congeals. What passed through fire once is tempered, then annealed. Children trace fingers over fossils, guessed at what's revealed. Evidence of ridges, indentations, lifelong over, hearts rush, sealed. Very nice. Thank you for reading that. Thank you, too. Yeah. So now we've kind of like scooted over into the area of your teaching. So could you tell us a little bit about the teaching that you that you're doing now and how you came to be there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I originally came to teaching resisted by resistance because my whole family are teachers. And when I was younger, I absolutely said there is no way I'm going to be a teacher. (laughs) But it's in my genes and it's all around me. And eventually I found my way to teaching adults. in homeless shelters. I was part of a group of writers teaching writing, and the philosophy was these are people on the fringes of society who don't have a voice, and our job was to give them a voice and to be heard. And what I learned from that work, which I still believe, is that um, everyone's life matters, and everyone has a story to tell, and each individual person is the only and the best person to tell his or her their own story. And what we can do is write together and then listen to each other's story. So that's, and then from there, I went to teaching adult ELL, um, English language learners, and it was all through writing, having us write, and we wrote poetry, and I published an anthology of their poetry, and that's when I really kind of caught on fire about realizing how important writing was. I always knew for me it was it was important, but it was a way into another language for my students. And then after teaching adults for several years, I went back to graduate school and then ended up teaching children, and my favorite thing to do to, with children is teach writing and to have them all believe that their story and their lives are important. And for me, the best way to do that is to have them write and then share it and read it and listen with full attention and presence. And so that's something that's been with me ever since I started teaching and I still very much believe it. That's quite interesting that you went back to school and then started teaching children. Because a lot of times we see people that are teaching children and then they go to back to school and then they, they kind of like move up in academia. So how did you make that decision to work with children? Ah, 
well, I went, I went back to school planning to teach adults and I was, had no intention of teaching children. I said, I don't like children. I don't, I didn't, nothing to do with children, but the program I was in had as sort of an add on, you get certified to teach in the public schools. And I figured, well, I'll just get it just to have it in the background, you know, if I ever need it. And then I needed a job and there was a, a position and it was horrendous. My first few years, I was very overwhelmed and I just thought I, I can't do this, but with each passing year, I really grew to to love it. And I discovered I really like being with young children. I work with the little ones from age five to 11. Um, I think because they're so alive and they're so present. When you're with young kids, you can't be anywhere else. You have to be right there with them. And they give me hope and they make me feel like there's still something, a uh, purpose to be alive and to make change. And they, they kind of lift my heart up every day, so. For I sure. feel lucky. I, I didn't expect it, but I feel very lucky to have found it. That's very cool. I'm thinking while you're talking about how kids don't know the rules of creative writing when they're that young. So I would imagine that they would be pretty free and appreciate the opportunity just to express themselves. And they don't yet have those expectations or those worries about, is it good enough or where is it, who's going to read it and where is it going to go? I think so. And I think even more so with poetry, because there's not as many rules. And when you tell a seven or eight year old, you don't have to worry about where the period goes or you don't have to worry about, but there's not one right way to do it. I feel like that's the kind of freedom. And I found with the young kids, even the kids that struggle with writing, poetry is often a way for them to feel successful and um, capable. And I've seen kids sort of blossom when they're, especially around second grade, like seven or eight years old, they just kind of come alive with poetry, so. I could imagine that might have been similar in the homeless shelter or with the ELL learners to know that there's no rules. I think with the ELL learners, especially what I found was they would come at the language with a different way. And I almost, I didn't want to correct their English because it was such an original and unique way of phrasing because they didn't have all the words. So they would kind of put the words together either based on their own syntax or what vocabulary they did have. But no matter what level they were from beginning to advance, they could write a poem. And they could um, share some of their emotion, which, especially for adults, they're carrying a lot. A lot of them were coming from situations that were very difficult or where they had to give up everything. So to have their voices heard again, I felt was really, really important. I would imagine that in that context, they're getting to use the language in their own way, not as a practical tool. Like if they've come to the United States and they're, you know, they need to learn English, you know, as a practical tool, you're giving them another way to see the language as a creative outlet. Yeah, I think it was both. So my, my classes would often fo- focus on both of them. Yeah, mm-hmm. certainly. And the same thing with the kids too. It's, you need to know how to use the language because that's power. And you also can do it expressively that's uniquely you. So kind of having those both because I feel like you also have to let them know what is the correct way and then where are their avenues where that's not as significant. Mm-hmm. I can see. So giving them a contrast helps them understand both sides. I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's It always continues to amaze me how much children understand and the leaps they can make with the language. For sure. So I want to kind of backtrack a little bit. You mentioned that you were working in a, in a science lab, was it? Yeah. Okay. So well, it wasn't a lab. It was, um, it was a research company. Okay. Um, and so my job in it was actually interviewing teachers. So that made some sense to me, but it was a lot of data collection. I remember just sitting all day, just typing in a, in a room by myself and thinking, this is not working. Uh-huh. <laughs> I need to be among people. So, and you also let me know that there was a gap in your creative output. Yes. I was writing very much in the, in the eighties and nineties. And well, actually, I'll, I'll tell you what the, the gap was. Many of my poems, especially the geology ones, had to do with relationships that weren't working. And it was my way of sort of processing and coming to terms and making peace and trying to understand. And then I got married the second time and I stopped writing. I said to my husband, you ruined my, my writing. <laughs> because I can't write about a relationship that's working. That's, that's not interesting. So there was a long gap. And then eventually other things kind of started to come up. And I also went back. But really, the impetus for gathering the poems together and trying to publish them was um, my mother's always been the one saying, when are you going to publish the geology series? And then a year ago in February, she was diagnosed with cancer. And I thought, I don't have any more time. And that's when I started just submitting poems every day online, which I'd never done. I, and I had no idea what I was doing, but I thought, I, I need to do this before she dies. 
And that was really the impetus. And I think I submitted over, you know, 600 poems to, to hundreds of places like, for months and months and months. And then one by one, that sort of started kind of um, catapulting and I started getting acceptances in different places. But um, that was really the impetus. When you were writing the poetry before, before the big gap, <laughs> had, were you in the practice of submitting at that time? Um, I was, and they were on, they were in print. So I, I had, I had a few acceptances, but very, very few, I, maybe you know, six or seven, not that many. And then I just, I think I lost faith. I went to, I did a, I did a poetry workshop and people really criticized my poetry and I just kind of shut down and thought, um, yeah, this isn't for me. I don't need this. And I, I think because I felt discouraged and afraid. And then I realized the only way you're not a poet is if you stop writing. So then I started writing again and started taking some online classes and was able to join a group of, of women. Now we meet once a month. We were members of a class together. And that's kind of helped me believe again, you know, and have more faith in myself. Does your group, do you read each other's poetry and comment or read and support? How do you guys shape yeah. that? Usually do like a writing activity, a writing, um, she get, one of the women reads poems and then we take lines from the poems and write from those. And then we read, read to each other and then kind of read back and give comments. So yeah, it just, it's a very supportive group, mm -hmm. all, all writers, all poets. Um, it, it's, it's been, again, it's sort of kind of like back to the homeless shelter. It's the idea of creating a space where you can be heard mm -hmm. your voice just by someone listening to your words is already, um, empowering. Yeah, and nurturing the community and, and helping each other and looking out for each other. Absolutely. That, that sounds pretty great. Yeah. I was thinking while you were describing that, that that must have carried over into your own experience when you guide the workshops, looking mm -hmm. out for pe people's creativity, because what you described of having gone through that negative experience, I think a lot of writers can go through that kind of negative experience, and it, it really can stick with you. Even though you know intellectually that you should be able to just shake it off, sometimes it just sticks with you, and it's really hard. I think one of the best things I learned from one of my poetry teachers, watching her when I was in college, when we would read, you know, dreadful poetry, I remember how she would listen, and she would always find something positive to say about everyone's poem, no matter how awful. She would even find, like, that word right there. And I feel like that's what I've taken, one of the things I've taken as a teacher when I'm working with adults or kids is finding a way to validate what they said, even if it's one or two words before you talk about what's not working or what you might want to work on. You have to find something authentically positive that you can mm -hmm. say. How does your poetry fit in with the rest of your life, with your family, friends, non-poet friends? Um, I think most people who know me know me as a, as a writer um, and I feel like that's my identity as much, if not more, than being a teacher, because I've been writing since I was a little girl, so they, they think of me as, as a writer, as a poet. I've felt very supported by family and friends, a lot of, a lot of celebrating, a lot of um, cheering me on, which is, which is wonderful. That is, that is very, very important, especially yeah. um, when everyone in your family knows that you're writing and you're actively submitting and that you have a book coming out, and that's yeah. really great. One of the lovely things when the book did come out my publisher wanted me to try to get a reading at, at a bookstore and a library. And I tried and no one was calling back. So one of the members of my writing group said, well, that's ridiculous. I'll have one for you. And she organized a reading in her backyard and publicized it. And it was wonderful. And that just kind of, again, touched my heart that people cared enough to, to do that. Talk a little bit about that publication journey. What was it like when you uh, got the acceptance and how did you celebrate? It was, it was wonderful. I actually met a poet, I was doing an online reading for another organization, and he was also, it was sort of an open kind of mic thing. And, and he and I liked each other's poetry, and we started emailing, and it turned out he was just starting, um, he had an online magazine, but he was just starting a publishing company, and he said he'd be interested. And I said, okay, I had to go with a grain of salt. But we continued to have conversations, and he said, put the manuscript together. And I, I really kind of couldn't believe it, but I did, and, and they accepted it. So it was it was thrilling. It felt like something I wanted to do before my time here is done and before my mother's time here was done. And for me, the, the most important thing was the day I was able to walk into her house and give her the first copy of the book. That does sound amazing. I'm sure she was ecstatic to see it. One of the things that students sometimes ask me about when it comes to poetry and putting it together in a manuscript is how do you decide what order to put the poems in? How do you decide to arrange them? So here's my, here's my chance to ask someone who's done this. 
Yeah, that was definitely a, a challenge and deciding do I put all the geology poems together or not. So I did. I grouped all the geologies together. But it was like a puzzle, like saying, okay, which one looks good next to this one? Which one is too similar? Which one is, um, where's the contrast? An arc, like starting out with more of the sort of the ecstatic, you know, joyful, passionate parts about love. And then what happens when things start to go wrong and start to erode, as it were. So that was kind of of the journey with the geology part. But I I want to balance it with other poems that were not so um, fraught. And the second half of the book has sort of more the quieter poems, the poems about some of my teaching or family members and a little more variety of types of poems, too. That was another contrast, like short poems, long poems, poems that have a specific meter and structure versus the more free verse. So I I guess balance so the reader would continue to be interested was sort of what was guiding me. Mm, I like that. So it's an emotional intellectual mix, a combination. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. Was there anything about the publication process that was surprising to you? Oh, yes. What was surprising was I thought was kind of funny. And just the lesson I took away from it was how incredibly subjective poetry is. was how many places said no, 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 no. And then other places would say, I love it, that I want that poem. And it just, it made me, uh, I thought it was humbling. And it was a good lesson for my ego to realize, you know what, some people love it, some people hate it. You just can't take it too personally. So that I think was sort of the surprise, but also a good lesson. For sure, because um, anyone who is thinking about submitting, that's a really key thing to keep in mind is that all, you know, fiction is also subjective. And a person that can get a whole bunch of just flat rejections can all of a sudden get somebody who's like, this is awesome. So it it was both humbling and exciting at the same time, realizing Mm -hmm. you just never know. Yeah. It must have been similar to the experience that you had when you sent out all the poems, the 600 submissions. Yeah, it, it was like I was it was almost a daily practice, like, all right, I'm sending out. This one, this one, this one, and I just kept track of it. And it was something I the process I really enjoyed. I think because it wasn't so stinging, it, it felt wonderful when it was accepted, but it didn't feel terrible when they weren't. So I just thought, okay, it's not right for them. Mm-hmm. Next, and then I would send it somewhere else. So it was it was actually a very good practice of of letting go of not being so attached to having it have to be published. I figured if it's going to be published, it will. It'll find its home at some point. I wonder if. Part of what took the sting away was that you sent out so many that you were in the pra- the daily practice of sending them out. So you already had a plan of, okay, if it gets rejected, I'll send it out again. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. That definitely makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's still, it still is wonderful and exciting when you get accepted. It's still a, <laughs> still a, a real thrill. And, you know, okay, who can I tell? Yeah, you know? absolutely. <laughs> tell mom and dad first, then tell family, then tell some <laughs> friends. Yeah. So the poems that are in the collection that just came out, yeah. Some of them were written years ago. Are some of them newer? Like, what was what's the time span of that work? Yeah, they are. I think both of them are, um, let's see, I would say Settling is more recent and Equilibrium Line is, is older, I would say. Yeah. Equilibrium Line, I, I realized, I was looking at it, I realized it's written in a certain format, which you wouldn't necessarily know, but there is a form called the American Sentence, which means every line has to have 17 syllables and only 17 syllables, no more, no less. So that poem is actually set up in that format. And what I found from doing that practice was sometimes being in a very strict format um, makes it easier to deal with a very emotional topic. It kind of gives me a little space to sort of look at it. And I feel like this poem is actually me asking myself some questions about a very painful topic, but getting a little distance so maybe I can see it and let go of some of the pain and see some of the beauty, the issue. Do you think the structure is kind of like a like a little security net then sort of so in emotionally when it's free form it could go anywhere like water going you know filling across a table but if it has a structure that might hold it in a little bit better and I think that's exactly what it is Melissa yeah it's like you I'm literally counting out syllables as I'm working with it so yeah it does kind of hold it kind of help you contain so you don't feel like you're going to fly off the edge of the page mm-hmm. so it's a little bit of a therapeutic process in that regard yeah. Bit. Yeah. different from the, the free poetry how does your future look for poetry like I'm wondering where do you get your inspiration now because you said a little bit before that it was a lot of ruminating on you know the past and what you wanted to be different so where do you get your inspiration now I think right now I get my inspiration more from 
steal from the kids in certain phrases they say. So sometimes because they're learning English, they'll come up with unusual, funny phrases. Like, for example, one of my students referred to the freezer as the upfridge. <laughs> so sometimes I'll play with language and see where that takes me. Um, I think where my poems, poetry is going is probably a combination of reflecting back. It's hard for me sometimes to not get discouraged or despairing about the way things are going climate-wise, environmentally. So I think I'm trying to sort of hold that, that sadness with still finding joy and beauty in the world that's still here, the, the love that's still here. So I think my poetry is kind of trying to make hold that equilibrium line, basically still balancing the loss and the gains and find ways to put it out there that's not so heavy, that's a little more um, tender. Mm-hmm. Do you write most every day or how do you do you, how does your schedule go? I, I try to do a writing practice every morning, like a, like sort of like a timed write where I just keep writing and writing and writing. And that's almost like a warm up and helps me get in shape. So then when the poems come, I'm in shape to kind of work with them. Mm-hmm. So I find when I'm doing a regular writing practice, it's easier to take on a poem when I feel inspired. It's not that I sit and wait to be inspired. Because <laughs> right. That's what you have to be in shape. You can't just suddenly get up and say, I'm going to run a marathon today, but you can run every other day so you're ready for the the longer haul. I think that's an essential message in all creative writing is that inspiration may or may not be with you when you start, you know, approach the page, but taking advantage of the time that you have. And like you said, the, the environment that you have, the emotional and intellectual environment and doing something with it and then just waiting to yes. see, you know, what, yeah. what shows up. That's, yeah, that's very cool. What are you working on right now? Another anthology collection or individual I poems? I'm, I'm right now kind of collecting um, the poems that weren't in the first collection. And um, I'm, I started a file now of the ones that have not yet been published. And thinking about, do I still want to do more geology? Because there's tons of terms. So I think I'm trying to right now decide, is that, do I want another one? Or do I want a completely different um, direction? So that's where I'm kind of sitting right now. trying to figure that out as I continue to write. That's the benefit of the creative process is you can wait on it. You know, on, on some levels, you need the, the guidance before it feels right. Yeah. So tell us where listeners can find your published works. Yeah. So they can find my published work. There's only one. Well, they can find the published works in, in many different magazines um, online. And I can get that to you if you want. The collected, the collected one book, it's available on Amazon. It's available at Brookline Booksmith. And I can give you that link. And the publisher are Beltway Editions, and they also have copies of it. So okay. I can get that information to you. Wonderful. We'll put that in the show notes, and certainly they can find your pieces in the Washington Square Review. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to our talented poets and authors. Until next time, this has been Washington Square On Air where we showcase selections from Lansing Community College's literary journal, The Washington Square Review, a publication featuring writers from the Great Lakes State, across the nation, and around the world. To find out more about The Washington Square Review, visit lcc.edu WSR. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed sharing. This is LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Coming in April to Dart Auditorium, Lansing Community College presents My Emperor's New Clothes by Larry Shu. This musical play for children of all ages is adapted from the story by Hans Christian Andersen. Colorful, brightly comic, and a truly delightful treat. This lively theater piece is filled with funny lines, hummable songs, and fast-paced action. Performances April 5th through the 13th. For more information, visit lcc.edu slash showinfo. If you or someone you know lives with epilepsy, be aware of an uncommon but fatal complication called sudden unexpected death in epilepsy, also known as SUDEP. It is the sudden unexpected death of a person with epilepsy who is otherwise healthy. 
Each year, CEDAP kills 1 in 1,000 adults with epilepsy and 1 in 4,500 children with epilepsy. The American Academy of Neurology and the American Epilepsy Society have released a new medical guideline to help patients, families, and caregivers better understand SUDEP and its risk factors. A high risk factor is generalized tonic-clonic seizures that involve the entire body. The guideline shows that reducing the number of tonic-clonic seizures could lower the risk of SUDEP. If you have epilepsy, it is important that you talk with your neurologist. To learn more about SUDEP, visit aan.com slash guidelines. That's aan.com slash guidelines. Registration for LCCU Summer Camp is going on now. To view all summer camps and to register, visit lcc.edu slash seriousfun. These week-long day camps are for students in grades 2 through 12 and provide fun ways to learn. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. It's time for Inside LCC, an inside look at Lansing Community College's academic programs. I'm Cassie Little, and we've got you covered with programs that nourish creativity and exploration, cultivate your purpose, and guide you to your career. Listen as we explore some of the opportunities at LCC and learn from conversations with faculty members, staff, and students. Hello. In the studio with me today is Isaac Reimer, faculty member in the communication program. Welcome, Isaac. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. Um, so we're going to kick it off right away. If you can tell us a little bit about what you do as a faculty member in the program and then about the communication program that you work in. Absolutely. So as you said, I am a full-time faculty member here in the communication program. I've had the privilege of getting to teach several different classes here at LCC, communication in the workplace, uh, small group communication, and personal being a couple of those. So what our program is within the the communicate or what the communication program is is we we tackle so much. There's so <laughs> much to communication. I think often when we think, ooh, communication is probably just a public speaking class, learning how to speak in front of an audience. And at the end of the day, it, it's so much more than that. There's so much that goes into to communication. The conversations that you're having with yourself when you first wake up in the morning, those conversations that you're having with your significant other or the, the painful family reunions where you're arguing with your uncle over some topic, all of that kind of gets wrapped up into communication. The very dreams that we have is a form of interpersonal communication, the communication with the self. So there's so many different layers that we're digging into when we're talking about these ideas of communication. So our program has to reflect some elements of that and really try to tackle it from a host of different angles. So we have a wide array of classes, whether it be communication in the workplace, where you're learning how to effectively communicate with your coworkers in the workplace, or we have interpersonal communication where you're learning to communicate with your family members, your significant others, small groups where you're not having to get conflict when you have a whole bunch of different people talking amongst each other. So that's kind of the different elements of what we're really trying to dig into as a program. I love that. And so a little background. I actually have a background in communication. That's what my degree is in. Yeah, so it's always um, good to meet someone yeah, else. In the I love it. Um, and part of what drew me to that is the broadness of it, like you said, there's so many facets that you can look into, things that you might not have even thought about as communication, and then the ways that it applies to your life. Like you said, I mean, self-communication with dreams, communication in the workplace, interpersonal, public speaking, there's so many ways that that can be useful in your everyday life. So I love that. You mentioned the interpersonal communication class. I took that class once upon a time at LCC. I loved it. It was one of my favorites. So I'm excited to have you here to talk about that. So what are some of the degrees and or certificates that are offered in your area? Absolutely. So we do have an associates in communication, and that is for students that are associates of the arts for the communication degree. And that's for students that are specifically looking to be transferring to a four-year institution and be transferring directly into a communication program. We also have general associates for students that are more interested in having a, a general credit to something that's still in the arts, but not necessarily communication. So our program, largely the students that are coming in and taking our classes are interested in transferring to other institutions to four-year degrees. We really want to make sure that we are giving students the ability to have those classes transfer. We have uh, several classes that are a part of 
the Michigan Transfer Network, and that gives uh, students the ability to have their classes directly transferred to a whole host of different schools here in Michigan. The classes specifically, we have uh, COM 240, which is interpersonal communication. We have COM 200, small group communication, and COM 130, which is fundamentals of public speaking. Those classes will directly transfer over, but something else that we really focus on is a lot of our classes are 200 level classes. They transfer to these four-year institutions as 300 level, 400 level courses. So already our classes are oftentimes more affordable than a lot of these classes they'll be taking elsewhere. But on top of that, they can be applied to a 300, 400 level class. They'll be saving a lot of money and getting some really great experiences. Plus, oftentimes a much smaller classroom size and they yeah. get to have that really cool dynamic with the, the professor and their fellow classmates. Definitely. All right. So if someone decided to get a degree in that area, what are some of the jobs that someone could get? Could they start working after graduation at LCC? Would they mostly want to transfer and continue their education first? Great question. Uh, so as we said, a lot of these students are going to be looking to go get a four-year degree. A lot of these jobs would be probably catering more towards a four-year degree, but there are quite a few jobs that you can still utilize a, a two-year degree for. There's a lot of individuals that come through my classes that are interested in starting their own businesses mm. and being able to be effective communicators is really effective in that they, they come out of it saying, oh my gosh, I now know how I can communicate with my clients, with different individuals I have to work with, my staff. These are going to be really helpful skills. I have someone who is running their own catering company, and there was a communication major that they were really using those skills effectively. Anything that you're doing with customers, anything you're doing in front of house in terms of really working with people is going to be really helpful to have a communication degree for. Definitely. And then, like you said, a lot of students, even if they're not getting that specific degree, will be taking some of those classes before they transfer. Exactly. I know you mentioned a little bit about the fundamentals of public speaking class, mm -hmm. too. And I think that, again, is another class that a lot of students are probably a little <laughs> nervous about taking or maybe shy away from it, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. such a valuable skill. And I think even if you do not plan to go into public speaking, just having that practice in a class to be able to do that is going to come in handy down the road if you have to give a presentation, even if you have to do that in another class. You know, a lot of other classes include giving a presentation. And so taking that fundamentals of public speaking class can help with those skills and for something that is a big fear for a lot of people it can be good to practice that in a kind of nurturing setting I guess exactly no 100% it's such a marketable skill to be able to speak publicly and it's it's really valuable and like you said it's nice to create a safe space and that's something I really focus on in the classroom is creating that environment where they do feel safe one of the first things I do in my classrooms when they come in is I say okay uh, let's have a silly exercise raise your hand if you've ever broken a bone raise your hand if you've ever done karaoke and I go through this long list who here has had junk food for, for breakfast. I raised my hand. Um, it got me through the morning, so I'm not ashamed. <laughs> yep. But uh, I ended by saying, uh, raise your hand if you have a fear of public speaking. And everyone in the classroom raises their hand. And I say, okay, I just want you to take a, take a moment, look around, and see that everyone is in the same boat as you. Everyone is feeling that same level of anxiety. Everyone wants each other to succeed here. So just know that going forward. And I then pair that initial exercise of safety with just having fun. I have them do some whose lines anyways, kind of throwback mm. to how old I am, yeah. exercise. Hey, I'm right there where with you. <laughs> they have to pitch different products to each other and it just ties this idea of public speaking to the goofiness and fun so when they actually have to do something more rigid and structured it comes off as more playful and fun rather than this really scary taboo topic that they have to dig into yeah it seems like that could get everyone more comfortable with each other too right used to interacting like that and yeah. talking in front of each other so that everyone's probably there cheering you on once exactly. you're up there we become right? family <laughs> yes That's nice yeah i like that so anything else that you want to talk about with stories about students or classroom experience, experience you have working in your field? Yeah, um, I have been a speech geek for a very long time now. <laughs> I did competitive speech in high school and when I was in high school, I was recruited to go and do it off at a, at a university. So I did it at Eastern Michigan University. And from there, I was then given funding to do that as a graduate student. And I was given funding to be a, stu a coach for, for competitive speech. So I've been doing competitive speech for a long time. And that's really rooted. Forensics or competitive speech is rooted in advocacy. And it's rooted in this idea of 
I have this voice and I have a responsibility with this voice to use it to hopefully shape the world and change the world and speak out at problems that I see around it. And it's not limited to just things that I care about. Part of advocacy is looking around and saying, who should I be giving my voice to? Mm. Who should I be using this voice to spotlight to kind of make sure that other people's voices are important as well? So that really reflects into my practices outside of the classroom. So when I was traveling the country for my thesis, I was volunteering at a marine sanctuary and using my voice to advocate for seals and sea lions in Laguna Beach. And then in the classroom, I really want to focus on how do I get my students to recognize their own voices? Because I've used my voice plenty. They hear my (laughs) voice all day, every single day. I want to hear what your voices are. What do you care about? What What is really important to you? And what that ends up looking like is I have students that come forward and say, you know, there's this thing that I really cared about, but I didn't feel like I had the skills. I didn't feel like I had someone there telling me that I should be speaking up. And so I had one student who was transitioning and they came forward and they said, hey, I really feel like I'm in a place where I want to talk about this. I really feel like I'm in a place where I want to bring awareness to this issue. And they used the classroom to learn the skills to talk about it. And they said, you know, I'm actually going to start speaking up at my local groups and I'm going to start becoming a champion and start encouraging other individuals. And it's this moment of just saying, yes, your voice is the one. You can do this. That's amazing. That is amazing. Finding your voice and practicing for those opportunities to be able to speak up for yourself or for others. I mean, that's all you can ask for, right? It really is. (laughs) That's great. All right. Well, thank you for all of that background. That's so interesting. Um, Your competitive speech background. I mean, I'll have to hear more about that sometime. (laughs) Absolutely. But is there anything else you want to share about the program or anything like that? I just want to take a moment and just really encourage if you haven't already taken a communication class, you should just take one. It, it is so valuable. You'll never regret learning how to communicate with yourself or others. You, your voices are powerful. You can change the world. Uh, and I'm not just saying the world of 8 billion plus people. I'm talking about the world can just be you, your own world, the way in which you handle yourself, the way in which you communicate, the people around you. You have the power over those things. You can shape all of it. Just learning how to communicate can solve so many of those different issues. If you look around today, all of the different problems we look at all over the place, they stem from a lack or an inability to communicate effectively. So, true. so if we can find a way to just learn to communicate more effectively, take a calm class, come see me. I promise it's a lot of fun. I highly encourage it. Yes, I like it. Okay, so last, my question for Inside LCC is what excites you most about your field in communication or teaching college students? So the thing that has been keeping me up at night with excitement uh, (laughs) of late is very much this evolution of AI and the emergence of Mm. it and how it's kind of tapping into the way in which we are communicating with each other. Throughout history, the tools that we create has fundamentally changed the way in which we communicate. It's changed the way that we are able to talk about the world, the way in which we look at the world is fundamentally shifted. I can now talk to my family member that is thousands of miles away because of the invention of the telephone. I can now imagine coming from Ann Arbor where I live to Lansing because of the automobile. I can now communicate about space and time differently just because of the tools that we invent. And so this new emergent AI will fundamentally shape the way in which we communicate with each other, the way in which we utilize creative thinking. There are so many different levels of the onion peel that we need to be kind of peeling across and say, okay, what does this mean for us? Because with the invention of the calculator, we didn't say, okay, we can't use that calculator because that's a new way of knowing. No, we said, okay, let's use this to learn new things and become more effective and efficient. So what does that look like? Right. I don't think any of us have a rule book or a, a procedural book of how to, how to go from here. So it's just going to be really, really fun to see what that becomes and where we go with it. Yes. Well, thank you for sharing, Isaac Reimer, faculty member in the communication program. Thank you so much for being with us and sharing with us today. Thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. This has been Inside LCC. I'm Cassie Little, and if there's a specific degree and program you want to hear more about, let us know by contacting us at lccconnect.org. Thanks for taking a listen Inside LCC. This has been a presentation of LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. All shows featured on LCC Connect are recorded at the WLNZ studio located on LCC's downtown campus. Each program is podcast based 
and can be heard anytime at lccconnect.org. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on one of our shows, connect with us by emailing lcc-connect at lcc.edu.